Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians 14, or 15. 15, beginning with verse 1. This is our series. This is our 80th sermon, if anybody's keeping track. Welcome back. Um, And we're going to be returning to the part of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that we've already had two sermons on in the past two weeks which are the first few verses. Stephen preached on it on Good Friday, and then I preached on it on Easter Sunday, and we return again this week. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he says at the beginning of our passage this morning, now I make known to you, he's not saying, okay, here's something you haven't heard. He's reiterating, he's going over it again, emphasizing it, repeating it. Now I make known to you, all right? Brethren, now when he says brethren, he's not just speaking to the men. It helps me to think of why the word brothers, which really would be a better translation, I make known to you brothers, it helps me to understand why this is used as the word for the whole church. To remember that back at this time, the church typically would have the men on one side and the women on the other, or the men up front and the women behind. And, and so if you can imagine, all the women and children are sitting here, and the men are here, you could imagine me looking at the men and saying, now listen, brothers. Now why would I look at the men? Well, because I'm a man, number one, and preaching is only done in the Christian faith by men because men have an obligation to be responsible for their families, to be responsible for their nations, for their race, for their tribe, for the city. Men are responsible. Why? Well, because Adam was responsible for Eve. Because in Adam, you died. You didn't die when Eve ate. She ate before Adam did. In Adam, you died, all right? And so this whole 
federal headship of Adam, God set up. Why? Well, because Adam was the father and God is the father. And so Adam represented God's. And so you keep working your way back and back and the world keeps working its way back and back. And as the world hates him addressing the brothers of the church and says, no, brothers and sisters, the world hates husbands being responsible for the household, for the marriage. The world hates Adam being responsible for the race. But don't ever think that it's just the particularities of language that the world hates. The world is always attacking God. And so the real hatred of the world is the fatherhood of God. Why? Well, because fatherhood is always authority. And so the world is trying to get us to change our language so you can't see the fatherhood of God. Now listen, brothers and sisters. And immediately it's like, yeah, sisters, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the world says that God the Father doesn't have authority over his son Jesus, that that's impossible because three people equal, you know. And so all of the conservative reform pastors, they say, yeah, that's right. The Father, just for a short period of time, had authority over Jesus. But other than that, it's just an indifferentiated sort of conglomerational kind of jello of divinity, you know. And they say, oh, no, 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 there are three persons, but there's no particularity about how they relate. Look, the Apostle Paul wrote, brethren, you either believe in the inspiration of Scripture or you don't. If you believe that every word of Scripture is inspired, then you look at the word brethren and you say, it's helpful to the women and children to be included when the word brethren is used because all Scripture is profitable. And then as a woman, you say, now how may I profit from being called a brother? You know, this is the one question I've never heard in my entire life. And this is insane. If we believe that the Bible's the word of God and that every word is inspired, then can we please have a predisposition, an inclination to think that every word's profitable? Because that's what it says about itself. And then, as a woman, you say, now, why am I included in brethren? And here's an idea. The minute you ask that question, a very helpful thought might come to you. Oh, yeah, in Adam, we all died. Using male-inclusive language reinforces that Adam is my federal head. And the minute you get that truth, then you think, oh, but that's a sweet thing, because then in Christ, all will be made alive. And he's my federal head. If you start as a woman to think about the federal headship of man and don't fight against it, as is typical with God, obedience blesses you. And you have all kinds of things that you would not realize other words. Now, you know how Jesus is always saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my hand, you learn of me, because I'm meek and humble, and you shall find rest for your soul. Right? And then he says, don't fear the man that can kill your body, but fear the one that can throw your body and soul into hell. And this is the same Jesus. And he's in perfect synchronicity with himself. Promises and warnings are both good, okay? So I've just told you a real sweet reason for you to not revolt against him saying, brothers, to not demand that he say brothers and sisters. Now, here's the negative. 
If you say that because women are included that we have to translate the Bible brothers and sisters because otherwise women won't know they're included, right? Which is what all the conservative Bibles have done now. Well, the ESV hasn't quite done it. Then here's the next step. You know, you know, something bad's coming. When you make a compromise, you should always know that something bad is coming. And here's the next step. The next step is, okay, you got the men here, and he's speaking to the men, but the women know they're included, right? But now he turns and says, brethren and cistern. What's the next step? Our little children... You know, looks at me and says, what about me? What about me? Don't I matter? And I say, oh, I can't believe I'm so insensitive. Brethren, cistern, and daughterin. Daughterin. And then we've got Noah and Daniel and everybody. The little boys go, what about me? And pretty soon, the whole world is just this insane cacophony, this, this noisy confusion of people demanding that they be named individually. You know, I reject all inclusives. I need to hear my name specifically before. Why didn't Jesus say, come to me, Tim? Look, the whole thing is insane. Okay, it's insane. Either every word of scripture is inspired and we stop objecting to him saying brothers and we realize we're all included or we're never going to stop objecting and we're going to demand that, you know, homosexuals and thieves and the greedy and daughters and sons and mothers and fathers and what, and <coughs> at this point in my life, what about me? I'm a grandpa. You know, I will not believe the Bible's addressed to me until it says grandpas. And in fact, I don't want to be called grandpa. My name is Bapa. It's just insane. It's insane, and it just shows how everywhere we go, everybody's cowering in front of our self-centeredness and willful demand. <coughs> Excuse me, and this is a place where we can learn from Asian culture. Okay? Asian culture has it down, the corporate identity. So, now I make known to you, brethren and sister and daughter and son and grandpa and papa and now I make known to you, nope, just what? Say it. Brethren. Oh, doesn't that sound good? I make known to you, brethren. The gospel. Now that word gospel means good news. Every time you hear the word gospel, you tend to go into some spiritual trance. You know, the gospel coalition, you know? And it's like, oh, yeah. Well, how about the Good News Coalition? That sounds a lot more practical, doesn't it? So what is the good news? Well, we'll get into that more 
with verse 3 where he says, for I delivered you as his first important that Christ died for our sins. But first, let's go through the first few verses, okay? He says, now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which, what? Which I preached to you. Why did he preach it? Well, on a most foundational level, he preached it because they didn't have a New Testament at this time. So the New Testament hadn't been written, and they didn't have printed books, and so everybody was dependent on hearing the gospel preached to be saved. And so he says, which I preached you. And then he says, not just that he preached it to them, but what? They received it. So he's going back and he's, he's repeating what they have heard him proclaim and what they had received. Now, what does he mean by saying that they received it? Well, <laughs> excuse me. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple John um, goes through, the, 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 he boils down. You know how, how you have to boil down maple syrup, maple uh, fluid from maple trees, and it becomes syrup. At the beginning of John, he boils it down, all right? And here's how he boils it down. You remember it begins, it, it begins in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So he's giving this, this biography of Jesus. And in verse 12, he says about Jesus, he says, but as many as what? Come on, you should know this, as received. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So he uses in parallel construction, received and believe in his name. So when the apostle Paul says here to us, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, it's similar to saying that they believed. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached it, they received it, which means they believed it. And so he's speaking to the Christians in Corinth, in the Corinthian church. They believed on the name of Jesus. They received the gospel. They received Jesus. Believing, receiving, it's all together which also you received, and then we have another verb, in which also you stand. Okay, now watch the verbs, okay? He made it known to them. He preached it to them. They received it, and they stand in it. Preach, receive, embrace, believe, stand. Now, receive kind of sounds soft, doesn't it? You know, what is reception? What is receive? If it stands for believe, what is belief? Well, it's proclaimed and you stand in it. All of a sudden, it's preached and you stand in it. It's, it's like it's a sandwich and it has two hard uh, bookends, all right? And this stand is very important because it's a progression. It's proclaimed, they receive it, <clears throat> And then they stand in it. And then he says, by which also you are saved. So he preaches it. They receive or believe it. They stand in it. They are saved by it. 
Did you notice the tense of that, that last statement? By which you are saved. Could it have been a different tense? Well, yeah, in Acts, there's a, there, there, there is a place where it says those who were being saved. So it could be a present participle. It could be past, he was saved. It could be a future, he will be saved. But here it's a present tense. You are saved. But then something that's really gnarly. And that is the word if. And if we're honest, we will admit that the church today would have no patience whatsoever for that word if. He just said, we are saved. Everybody's prepared to say, yeah, we are saved. Isn't that a wonderful truth? And so I preach a sermon about how we are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ came to sinner, to save sinners. And if you're a sinner and you look to him and his blood for the washing of your sins, you are saved. And we're all ready for that. That sounds good. But then he says the word if, and immediately we begin to sort of withdraw inside of ourselves and recoil and kind of pull back and kind of go, What's this if business, right? Well, it gets worse. If you, me, my salvation depends on God, on the work of Christ, the completed work of Christ, the imputation of his form. Me, if you, really, all right, okay, if you hold fat. Now, this really does sound like works righteousness. It sounds like a conditional statement if you hold fast. You know, there can't be any conditions. God loves me just the way I am, and that's the way it is. And so what we would say is, (laughs) we would say, um, that's wrong because the Bible teaches once saved, always saved. That's what we would all say. We would say, I believe in once saved, always saved. But he says, if you hold fast. I'm a Protestant, so I don't have to work my way into heaven. But he says, if you hold fast. What is holding fast but working my way to heaven? I mean, it sounds as if the Apostle Paul's statement is a way of us going back and recovering the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church's infusion and replacing imputation. You know, we go back, and if you hold fast, well, how do you hold fast? Well, you know, faith working through love. I mean, the way we hold fast is that we have uh, confirmation, and, and then we have auricular confession, and then we take mass, and then we keep working the system, working the system until we have last rites, and then if we haven't quite completed it, we have purgatory, and we can finish in purgatory the work of infusing the holiness of God and his righteousness to me so that I am worthy of heaven. And so it sounds like the Apostle Paul may be in danger of straying into... Okay, I'm raising my hand. I'm being a little facetious here. Okay. (laughs) Of straying into 
Roman Catholicism, if you hold fast, somebody needs to, you know, Priscilla and Aquila really need to take the Apostle Paul aside and instruct him deeper about the things of the faith, like they did with Apollos. I'm being facetious, but you can see how my brain works, right? Because I'm perverse. And I all of a sudden begin to accuse the Apostle Paul of not quite understanding the doctrine of Scripture. Which, if, if we're honest, we do that with the Apostle Paul all the time. We're always telling the Apostle Paul that he doesn't get it. That he's not as good as his doctrine. That he strays at times. That there are certain occasions where the Apostle Paul is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But of course, again, all Scripture is inspired by God, Theopneustos, God breathed, and is profitable. So there must be some profit behind him saying, if you hold fast. Right after he says, you are saved, if you hold fast. There must even be a prophet, maybe especially a prophet, to reform Protestants. It must be that once saved, always saved, has been the way that Reformed Protestants have stolen from God salvation such that they can make it a dog, a little lap dog, not a lab, but a little lap dog of their insecurities and flabbiness and unbelief. And that's, of course, the case. If we were to rewrite this, here's (coughs) here's how we would rewrite it. We would have the Apostle Paul saying this. You wouldn't believe how quickly I'm making it through the sermon. <laughs> Listen to how we would rewrite it. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... Well, <laughs> let's really rewrite it, okay? Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and grandfathers and grandmothers, the gospel which I preached you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. And don't forget, once saved, always saved. Remember what Jesus said, those who come to him, he will never cast out. That's how we'd write it. I remember being at a church in Boulder, Colorado, very wealthy church, very large church. I was a member of the pastoral staff for a year as an intern. And I remember a discussion about the warnings of Hebrews. And I remember, and the senior pastor was a a prince of a man. A prince of a man. But I remember in a discussion around the table, I remember him talking about the warnings as being the things that God needed to say in order to keep us in line. Do you understand that? And implicitly what he was saying was, without these warnings, we would not stay in line. What does stay in line mean? Well, it's perseverance. Hold fast to the end. If we didn't have these warnings, we wouldn't hold fast to the end. All right? Now, what's my problem with that? Well, if you want to explain this warning of the Apostle Paul to me by saying that it's a warning that 
we need to stay in line, and you're implying that this warning has no teeth to it. In other words, that it's not possible that any of us would not hold fast. Do you understand that? That's just devious. You know, that's like the Apostle Paul, or rather the Holy Spirit, deciding, you know, unless I imply something that's impossible, I can't keep them in line. (laughs) You know, this is bogus. The Holy Spirit's not going to scare you with something that's no real danger just so you'll stay in line. Right? We all get this. Let me, uh, let me read to you an account from Scripture, which I would put as one of the more scary uh, happenings that the Bible has a record of, okay? This is in Acts chapter 8. It's the account of a man named Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. Now there was a man, beginning in verse 9, now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, so now the gospel comes in, to their superstition, magic signs of Simon, magic sign. <clears throat> but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And then this statement, even Simon himself, what? The word is believed. The word is believed. So let me ask you, have you believed in Jesus Christ? Most of you would say yes. Right? Why would you be in church if you weren't at least thinking about believing in Jesus? You know, this, is, this place belongs to Jesus. You believe in Jesus. That's why you're here. Right? Are you here because you believe? All right, you're with Simon Magus. He too believed, it says. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. So now you have, uh, you know, Dickie would say the trifecta, right? Now you have all three of them. You got Philip, and you have Peter, and you have John. That's a pretty powerful threesome, all right? They're all there. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now we pick up the story of Simon again. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, Simon did what Simon does. Simon... It says he offered them money, (laughs) saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Not good, people, not good. But Peter said to him, now watch this carefully. Remember, he believed. Peter said to him, after he believed, after he was baptized, Peter said this to him, may your silver perish what? Does anybody know what comes next? 
with you. May your silver, may your wealth, may your checkbook, may your money perish with you. Now, we're okay with his money perishing, right? You know, you can't love God and money, you know, filthy lucre, you know, perishes money. But did you notice the second part of it? May your silver perish with you. Why? Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He believed, and here he is being told, may he perish and his money. Now, you know that what's being said here is hell. You're not talking about just die. Perish in this context is clearly not a good thing spiritually, and it's connected with what he did spiritually. And then he goes on, he says, you have no part or portion in this matter. Now, what's the matter? Well, the matter is not just the laying on of hands and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel. There's nothing about what he did and said that is gospel-y. And so may your silver perish with you. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that... Now, does anybody know what comes next? If what? If possible. Pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now, if you read and listen to pastors preach on this passage, what you're going to find is that everybody is really uptight about what actually went on here because it says he believed and he was baptized. So if you're a baptismal regeneration person like the Campbellites, like the Roman Catholics, like Eastern Orthodox, you have a real problem here because the apostles, and apparently they all three agreed because they're all three there. The apostles are saying to him, you and your silver perish. You have no part in this. And pray that if maybe you will be forgiven. Now we come back to the passage that we've been reading. I should end it by saying, but Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Okay? Now we come back to this and we see, by which also you are saved, present tense, you are saved, if you hold fast. Listen, when we hold fast, we don't earn salvation. If we don't hold fast, we are not saved. Both true. As a matter of fact, let me go further. If we hold fast, we're saved. We're not saved because we hold fast. If we don't hold fast, we're not saved. We can have believed and still not hold fast. We can have been baptized and not hold fast. And once saved, always saved. Now, earlier I was saying, don't, don't trot out that once saved, always saved as a way of getting rid of this warning. But it is true, once saved, always saved. It is true that he will begin, 
complete the work he has begun in us. It's also true that those who come to him, he will never cast out. Now, why do we have a problem with all of these things being true? Well, the reason is that it's in man's knavish interests, his sinful desires, man is always displacing the word of God with his own thoughts, his own judgments, his own pathetic values. And so what we want to do is we want to remove all risk factor from life following baptism or following praying the sinner's prayer. You know, this last week once more, I can't, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was two weeks ago, but sometime in the last couple of weeks, I heard somebody say, in describing the condition of a loved one, say, well, you know, he he made a confession of faith when he was young. He prayed to receive Jesus in Sunday school. He, you know, and in Good News Bible Clubs. It, it can change what we point to, and what we point to tends to indicate what denomination we are. But it doesn't matter what you want to point to. Simon Magus believed, and he was baptized, and he was right hanging at the precipice of hell. Those things are true. And doctrinally, once saved, always saved. The real issue is, who is saved? And so typically what we do is we choose a church, depending upon how we want to get brittle and die spiritually. Now, does that make sense to you? Since we're sinners, and we know that we have an immortal soul, and we know that we sin, and we know God is holy and he'll judge us, what we typically do is choose the denomination of the church we go to depending upon what anesthetic we want as we go to sleep. And so those that want an objective anesthetic go to sacramentalist churches, right? Churches that have the Lord's Supper every week and baptism, bomb, 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 bomb. Or they go to churches where you light candles and crawl up the steps of the cathedral on your knees in La Ciudad de Mexico. They don't tend to do such gauche things in the northern countries, right? And auricular confession, although that's not as important anymore. And weekly mass, because daily mass is done, (laughs) you know. In other words, choose your church. And those who are not wanting their bodies involved in salvation, okay? In other words, they don't want to go to Mass. They don't want to say rosaries. They don't want to light candles. They want to crawl up. Well, those people go to Presbyterian churches. And once they get in Presbyterian churches, instead of of intentions and rosaries and and confession and, and, and Mass, what they get is... Jesus loves you just the way you are. The grace of God is wonderful. Jesus loves you just the way you are. The grace of God is wonderful. Once saved, always saved. Grace of God is wonderful. And Presbyterians love it because it's all cerebral. It's all in the brain. You don't have to stand up if you don't want to in worship. You don't have to sit down if you don't want to. You don't have to kneel. You don't have to lift your hands. You don't even have to close your eyes. Because it's all... But really, what's the difference? Presbyterians just listen to grace 
all the time and are told once saved, always saved. And, 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 and the Roman Catholics are told that if they work the, you know, they work the sacraments and they work the church and they love the church and faith working through love and then purgatory. And, and nobody is listening to the Apostle Paul say, if you hold fast. Nobody. And listen, Scripture's filled with warnings like that. Just incidentally, in the book of Galatians, okay, the Apostle Paul writes twice in a short period of time. And he says this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Did you suffer so many things, what, in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Do you see? He's like this. You know? Was the gospel in vain to you, if indeed it was in vain? And, you know, if you were there listening to the Apostle Paul, you might say to him, well, make up your mind, Paul. Was it or was it not in vain? And he says, well, that's up to you. And you say, no, no, it's up to God. He's the one that saved me. He's, it's all of grace. And he says, yeah, persevere and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And you say, well, now you're telling me that I have to work my way to heaven. He says, no, I'm just waiting to see whether your salvation is true. Because you know something, if, if you don't have good works, if you don't produce fruit, it's all in vain. And you say, wait a second, what's in vain? And he says, okay, you heard the Simon Magic story. He says, believing. And you say, but God uses faith as the means to accomplish salvation. How can you tell me I can believe and still not? And he says, if you hold fast to the end. Listen. It doesn't matter what your system is. It doesn't matter whether you like the flesh and are sacramentalists or you like the brain and you're Presbyterian. You cannot escape the warnings of Scripture that only those who hold fast to the end will be saved. Okay? Do not use one text of Scripture to oppress the other texts, the other warnings of Scripture. Don't do it. God is God. God doesn't have to fit into your wife's cocoon. Now, why did I say your wife? Well, because that's what every, every, every father and husband is forced to do. He's forced to be a good father within the cocoon of his wife. <laughs> you know, what she thinks is her tolerance level for danger to her children, right? Men, come on, can I hear an amen? Oh, you guys are pathetic. You listen, if the women weren't here, I'd have a loud amen, okay? This never stops that the men live their lives in such a way as to reassure the mother of their children that everything's going to be okay. Paul does not write Scripture that way, and the Holy Spirit doesn't inspire Scripture that way. Why? Because those who do not hold fast to the end will not be saved. That's why. And you say, but, and I say, God wrote it. And you say, no, no, it was, it was, it was, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote it. But you would never say that because you wouldn't want to acknowledge that the Apostle Paul's an authority when you're arguing with him. So you would do what all the scholars today do, which is they say, well, Paul, Paul. Paul wrote that. 
Do you know how many thousands of times I've typed the word apostle into my sermons? You have no idea. Why do I do that? Because it's a discipline to me, because I disrespect authority. I want to remind myself every time I use the name that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay? This morning I'm thinking, what is that thing in Word where you can just like type two letters and be done with the whole, I'm so tired. Carp, capital A, capital P, isn't there some tweak, you know? But it's good for me to type it. You know, Paul, you're pretty close to the error of salvation by works if you hold fast to the end. You better back off and reconsider this, Paul. But of course, today, the scholars don't even give Paul the dignity of his name. Do you know how they refer to places like this in Scripture? What they actually say is not the Apostle Paul, and they don't say Paul, what do they say? They always say the text. They, they depersonalize it. They take Paul out of it, and it's like they're a doctor doing an autopsy on a cadaver. You know, the text, what the text says, you know. And all of a sudden, it's so easy for us to argue with God and to leave behind the warnings that he gives us from his love, from his gentleness, from his compassion, from his truthfulness. This last week, we had some men come and work on our property, and I was talking to one of them, the owner, and real wonderful guy. And I said to him, um, I said, uh, are, you a, are you a Christian? I figured he was. And he said, no, just real matter-of-factly. Then I said, uh, do you sin? Because isn't that the question to ask somebody who says they're not a Christian? If you're not a Christian and don't have the blood of Jesus to cover your sins, I'm worried for you because maybe you don't know you're a sinner. So I said to him, do you sin? And he said, yeah. And his helper five feet away said, well, of course, everybody sins. And then I said, but then why aren't you a Christian? that's as complicated as it gets. That's the gospel, right? So he started work, and he could not get his bulldozer in between my fence that Dwayne and Eric built, I think, and the Thuja Green Giants that I planted. And in between the fence and the Thuja Green Giants was a tree. And this tree is an apple tree, planted as a little whip. And now it's beautiful. Nice structure, interior, not like this, but out. Beautiful blossom springtime. Beautiful apple tree. And every springtime, that apple tree continues to put on this beautiful display of flowers. It's just a beautiful apple tree. And it couldn't be over so close to the peach tree where I planted it, idiot. So D. Wayne dug up that apple tree and he planted it, replanted it, transplanted it right to where it was. But he had to get his bulldozer through. So guess what happened to that tree? That tree is gone. That tree has been cut down and burned. Why? That was a false apple tree. 
That apple tree kept giving me promises of love every springtime. And it never gave me a single piece of fruit. (laughs) And what do you do with fruit trees that keep making promises to you and don't produce? You might give them another chance. Somebody once said this. (laughs) But if it doesn't produce again, it's gone. Listen, this is true of the Christian life. You can believe, you can be baptized, you can go to Mass, you can say your rosary, you can do anything you want to. You can be in a Presbyterian church where they say salvation isn't by works, salvation is all of grace. And they can say that to you a hundred times every Sunday. And the only people who are saved are those who hold fast to the end. And those people, unfailingly, are fruitful. Now, what's the opposite? This is where we have to be very careful and realize that the opposite looks very religious and very good. The opposite are those who get tired of seeing their sin. They get tired of being told about their sin. They get tired of grieving over their sin. And let me tell you, that's me this week. I told our pastor's college men, I'm, you know, I didn't put it this way, but I'm so sick of my tongue. It is a world of hell. It's set fire on fire by hell itself. And you just get to the point where you don't want other people pointing out your sin. You don't want yourself seeing your sin. You don't want your wife talking about your sin. You don't want your children hurt by your sin. And so there are two options. One is to hold fast to the end. Because <laughs> it's a perfect storm of sin. Even as you're sanctified, it only becomes more of a perfect storm of sin. Or you can just get brittle and hard. (laughs) And guess what happens then? Well, you go find a church that's going to tell you you don't have to hold fast to the end. You go to a church where they don't talk to you about it. You go to a church where the elders aren't helpful, where the pastor doesn't preach the conscience, You go to a church where nobody even knows anybody. (laughs) You know, you just show up in your SUVs with your bleached blonde hair. Don't worry, if you have bleached blonde hair, I don't mind. And if you drive an SUV, I don't mind. But I mean, come on, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Can, Can comedians say it and you can laugh, but I say it and you get angry at me? Come on. Okay, you show up at churches where it's all pro forma. It's all ba-boop, 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 ba-boop. And you can live in that church brittle and hard against God, not producing one piece of fruit your entire life. And they'll tell you we are saved. And they'll say that every single week, and you'll never hear the Apostle Paul say, if you hold fast to the end. Listen, there's nothing more beautiful than holding on to the end. I was talking to a young woman today who showed me that she had been sent by IU a bandana, and printed on it was something... Remind me what it said. Do you remember what it said? It says something like... um, What is it? Yeah. 
Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's something like some paths are better than the straight and narrow. And so it's their way of getting students for IU. They send this to students they want to recruit, a bandana that says, you know, some paths are better than the straight and narrow. Right? Better than the straight and narrow. And this is the world. The world is doing everything it can to redefine as righteousness what God says is wickedness. And what I said to her is, you realize that if you walk the straight and narrow path, you will be the only one around that has real diversity and pluralism. You will be the most perfect snowflake the world has ever seen. If you want to be a snowflake, live by the law of God holding fast to the end, and nobody will be more peculiar and weird than you. After all, isn't that what they say they're going to give us, is you can be as weird as you want to be, right? But you can't. The only way you can be weird is if you follow God. And so, here's the end. If you look at our passage of Scripture... You see the Apostle Paul going on about the resurrection. And so he ends up talking about everybody that's witnessed the resurrection. He goes through his list, right? And then he comes, if I'm going to find my first page. All right, here's another way of doing it. There we go. So he goes through all the people that have seen the resurrection that we went through on Easter. And then he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then, do you remember? Is it up there? One more. Keep going. And last of all, now, do you know what that word, one untimely born is? what What he says, Charles Hodge uses this word. Charles Hodge says, and then to the abortion. The abortion. The miscarriage. This is how the Apostle Paul speaks of himself. Now, does anybody want to refer to themselves as a miscarriage or an abortion? Anybody here want to say, I'm an abortion? But this is how the Apostle Paul thinks of himself. Because he says that compared to all the apostles, I, the way Jesus appeared to me, I'm, I'm, I'm an abortion. I'm a miscarriage. Okay, and then he says, he appeared to me, for I am, look at this, I am the least of the apostles. Listen, this is what it means to hold fast to the end. The apostle Paul didn't get to the point in his life where he said, I'm not going to think about my sin anymore. I'm tired of people reminding me. I'm tired of people not treating me the way I deserve. I'm done with it. And so they went out from us because they were not of us. And they stopped repenting, and they stopped clinging to Jesus. Do you see? Is the Apostle Paul clinging to Jesus, or is he not? Look at him. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle. Oh, Paul, here we go again. You're such a pathetic man. You're such a pathetic man. So weak. So easy to be dismissed. So unpastorous, so unpulpit, so, and not fit to be called. Because I, pers- oh, Paul, please, come on, dude. 
get some self-esteem. Grow up. That was a long time ago. You've done a lot of good work since then, right? I persecuted the church of God. And who is the church of God? Remember, on the road, God said to him, why are you persecuting me? I persecuted the church, but, and he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. (laughs) Does that sound like a statement of a hopeful man? No. He's like, "Ah, ah, 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 okay, I am what I am by the grace of God. (laughs) This is a man who has just barely escaped hell. And only because God, like David, plucked him, plucked him up out of the hole and set his feet on a rock. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay? And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. (laughs) So he's saying, hey, dudes, you know, I was persecuting the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I believed. He, He revealed himself to me. I believed. And you know something. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I persecute. But it didn't prove vain. I labored even more than all of them. He's saying that he did more good works, that he worked harder than all the apostles together. (laughs) So here's what you have. You have a man bragging about the work of God, but not about himself. Do you see that? Because then, again, he comes to his senses, and he says, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Listen, That's the only other choice there is to being brittle and finding a church that will remove your conscience and remove the warnings of Scripture and end without fellowship and without warnings and without sin and without prayers and without preaching. Look, those are the only two options. The third option is the option the university presents, but none of you want to do that. You don't want to just become without a conscience because you know you're sinners. You're like this guy working on my property. He knows he's a sinner but he has nowhere to go. You have gone to Jesus Christ. You have gone to the blood of Jesus Christ. You have believed that his blood was shed for your sins. You have believed that he did not die in vain because you have your claws in him. You will not let go. Okay? You know the Ethiopian proverb? The Ethiopian proverb is, if you catch a leopard by a tail, hold on! (laughs) That's the only way you're going to keep from being eaten. Well, the same thing is true of Jesus. If you catch Jesus, if you believe in him, you receive him, hold on. Because the rest of your life, you're going to grow in your seeing of your sin. You're going to grow in your conviction. You will become the least of your family, the least of your marriage, you will become the scum of the earth. You will be at the end of the parade. If Christ is not raised from the dead, what does the Apostle Paul say? We are of all men most pitiable. And you know what Calvin says at that point? He says, why? Why are we any more pitiable than anybody else? Well, the reason is we're all in. And everybody else is saving their self-respect. Everybody else is saving their possessions and their money and their pride. 
Everybody else is living for today, is eating and drinking and being merry. But Christians are <laughs> postponing gratification because we know that the real test is the judgment seat of God. So hold fast to the end. You have not believed in vain. You are a sinner. You're a terrible sinner, just like the Apostle Paul. But that's good company. And so that's the gospel. Stand in it. Don't give up. And you will be fruitful. Let's pray.